Just past 7 o'clock, and what do you know? We love Monday nights here. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a good one for you tonight. And Ira, you must have getting a little bored, man. This was like the quietest week you've had in, in two months. Not that much live action for you. I had no live action. I'm sorry. On Friday, <laughs> I was about to go to, to the uh, Tampa, and I, I didn't make it, and I felt bad. I said, I'm letting Mike down. I didn't drive. <laughs> but I'm going to Atlanta tomorrow. But it was like, it didn't. I feel bad I didn't go. But it's like every night. I wish I had a show every single night because... Each night of the NBA playoffs, is, there's like drama. It's, it's, it's like a soap opera. And we're going to cover, there were six games. We're going to cover the six games. But I wish we could have just done it right after the games are over because I have so many comments. I'm marking every, writing things down, everything about. We need to start appealing to the national market and get on uh, five, six, seven days a week. I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that, Ira. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations. Today's your birthday. And uh, like you said, you're going to celebrate by heading out of town uh, tomorrow. Well, it's my birthday, and I love on my birthday doing my show. People said, "Are oh, you know, going to do?" I, I love. We, well, you know, we're. Great. I'm excited to do this show. I love doing it. And uh, for my birthday, I'm going to go see Atlanta. I've never been to State Farm Arena. I'm going to see Bucks and Hawks uh, tomorrow in Atlanta. I got my plane ticket. Don't have the ticket for the game because I noticed that the t- tickets really drop before or close. This is one you watch if you're going to go to a game for like in a series or something like that. Watch like the day before, see what happens in the in the tickets. And I noticed that like two hours before the game, the tickets dropped like seventy percent. Crazy. So I think for this this game the same thing so i'm gonna wait to get it but I'm, i've never been i've been to atlanta for this last time i was there was for the super bowl yeah and uh that the patriots beat the Rams. so but uh but no this will be i've never been i've been to the omni the old arena but not the state farm arena they play in now it's uh, really cool stuff and uh, you, you're assuming that if, if the hawks had won the tickets would have stayed the same or went up hawks would if the hawks won the tickets would have exploded i mean we, we were talking about that off air a little bit about the stanley cup in terms of in the uh islander series in game seven the ticket prices were pretty reasonable. Mm. And I said, oh, I won't go, but I'll go to the, to the finals. And the tickets are like $1,000 to get in. I mean, it's it's the highest. And you think that it's because of Montreal fans yeah. that are bidding it up. That's what, Well, you know, you, were saying, you brought up a good point. They're doing very limited live hockey in Canada. There's a ton of French Canadians and, you know, people from Canada here in South Florida. So why wouldn't they be there? I mean, when, anytime I went to a Panthers game, it was a sea of whatever t- uh, Canadian team was there. So I'm thinking that is the reason, because like you said, the Islanders wasn't, weren't that bad. It was like $150 to get into the game seven. And then for the Stanley Cup, it's like 1000 It wasn't <laughs> like 150 $1,000. <laughs> big, big difference. And hopefully you can get over there too, because that arena, I have a friend who was actually there for game seven and he said it, it was just electric in, the, in that place. And he doesn't understand why the, the Rays can't get any... <laughs> fan base when, when uh, they do have such a good uh, following for hockey. Uh, Matt Sullivan's going to join us. He's the author of Can't Knock the Hustle. Well, it's a book about the uh, Brooklyn Nets. He was embedded with the team, a reporter that covered the whole season. It's really good insight. You've, you might have seen he's getting a lot of PR about comments that he's breaking about how the, the Nets came together and Kyrie and KD and Steve Nash and Harden, just everything. So I'm glad that we could get him on the show. Book was interesting. I read it this weekend and can't wait to have him and talk to him about the Brooklyn Nets. Let's uh, pop over to the NBA, Ira. We've got Phoenix and the Clippers uh, facing off, and this one could be over for pretty soon. Well, it could be over to in about three hours. <laughs> um, the uh, point is that in you know game two, uh, Phoenix ended up winning that 104-103. That was known as the and- DeAndre Ayton alley oop game. Uh, Great rem- finish. It was just it was one of those finishes that was that was that it, this was the best. This could have been probably the best game of the playoffs so yeah, far I agree. of anything. And uh, DeAndre Ayton, it wasn't just a fluke at the end. He played well during this whole game. Here's someone who went first in the draft, and you have Doncic come after him, Trey Young come after him, and he's and we said, boy, what a bust, what a bust. Well, he's someone who's going to get a max uh, money 
Everyone's seeing how well he's playing. As we talked before, he actually is playing to do what he does. What this, he knows what his role is. He's not mm-hmm. shooting threes, not standing out there. But there was no Chris Paul, so Cameron Payne came in. The game started point for him. Scored twenty nine points and had nine assists. And uh, there's no Kawhi Leonard for the for the Clippers. But the Clippers hung in there, and they were using their bench with uh, Terrence Mann, Rajon Rondo, Cousins, Batum, Kennard. Uh, but it was like one of those things where Booker has been struggling this series. He had nine points in the first half. Paul George had nine points. And the second half, things really picked up. Um, Beverly, Patrick Beverly, head-butted. And I think that Beverly is one of the dirtiest players. Uh, my friends are all arguing back and forth. But if you were Patrick Beverly, I can't tell you how many injuries. Russell Westbrook's knee is hurt. It was hurt because he tore his... He, Beverly just goes and crashes into people. <laughs> and he puts his head right... He put his head right in. It wasn't like, was that intentional? Well, if you head-butt someone, it's intentional. <laughs> like if your head's right there. And that made uh, Booker have to, for the Phoenix, go out... Then he had to come back with a mask, was not going to wear a mask, broke his nose in three different places. But I gave him credit for coming in, in into the game or whatever. But the, this game is known for the eight and dunk and also Paul George missing two fouls at the end. But the one thing to remember is Paul George made a three. He then then he made another. He made he made four foul shots and another drive. I mean, he was scoring at the end of those games. He scored eight points in like two minutes, so he played great. But the key was that Booker turned the ball over, and that was one of those weird things where they're now reviewing. They reviewed that last minute of the game. The only thing that made the game poor that people didn't like was it took like thirty minutes to play the last minute because they kept reviewing. It wasn't timeouts. They kept reviewing every play. So Booker turns the ball over. And because they said that even though the ball was knocked out, that his fingertips were still on the ball. Now, everybody could go to any place. Someone knocks the ball out. No one's looking with a small little saying, well, when someone takes, cuts the ball off your hand, then the finger, like it's your stuck. fingertips are still on it, even though the other team knocked it out. So George goes to the line. And this was his chance with a few with seconds left to take a three-point lead, and he misses two free throws. And that's like the, your, your Paul George He's not Giannis. He's not Ben Simmons. He's an 85% free throw shooter in the regular season. He's one of the best free throw shooters in the mm-hmm. league and he's known for his poor playoff performances and he misses two free throws. But he had played like two minutes before. He had hit eight, cl- eight you know, good points. And then they got the ball. Phoenix has the ball. They, they doubled Booker. They threw it to Bridges and Bridges took this uh, bad shot. It goes out of bounds, leaving like 0.3 seconds left. And this is where they designed this perfect play where Jay Crowder from the Miami Heat was inbound from more Miami Heat, but inbounding the ball. And Booker set this amazing pick on Zubak. Aiton comes in and was able to dunk the ball. Just it, it was literally just thrown over. And everyone said, wait, that's goaltending. But remember, at the last where there's no time left when you're inbounding the ball, you can't score in the inbound. Like, I can't be on outside and just throw the ball in. Mm-hmm. So you're allowed to have goaltending. Yep. You're allowed to have offensive goaltending on the last play of the game. And I couldn't believe it. Some of the announcers didn't even know that. Like, Van Gundy knew, but a lot of these announcers didn't know that you can actually have that and that was just that was a great play the pick the pass from Crowder was perfect and the pick from uh, a Booker on Zubak was great but I don't understand is why Zubak didn't just stand underneath the basket like he should have just been standing there he didn't have like Aiton wasn't going to shoot a 10-15 foot shot mm-hmm. so I thought that but it was just a perfect play and that really that you know that was the thing that put them up two games to none that was a really important that was an important win for them otherwise it was 1-1 and uh, George ended the game with 26 points but it was he was 5 for 10 from the free throw line uh, Booker ended Ended the game with 20 points. Payne, as we said before, 29 points was the one who ended up at eight and were the two stars. Let's uh, move on to game three. And this is one I, I, I texted you after the fact. Like, really should have bet this one. You were getting great odds on the Clippers. And, you know, it, 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 not necessarily back to the wall, but this was like a must-win game here. And I, I thought that uh, they had a good shot. Well, it's game three. They go back to the Clippers. Now, this is where Chris Paul's coming back in the game. So they're up 2-0. They're going back in. And... I just think Chris Paul's coming back to the to he played for the Clippers for eight years. He's going back from the Suns, going back to L.A. 
they, the uh, um, Clippers just lost that terrible game. I thought there was no way that the game was going to be a blowout. So I was, I was reversing your mm-hmm. thought. But the fact is, it was, uh, it was a very impressive uh, a Clippers win, 106-92. Um, but because Paul played, like, in, with four months to go in the second quarter, Chris Paul was 0 for 6, and Devin Booker was 1 for 8. So they were, I mean, Booker and Paul both shot poorly. And then the worst thing is that Cameron Bain, who played great the day, the game before, sprained his ankle. So he's mm-hmm. out. So that instead of bringing Paul, who had COVID and not, hadn't really played except in the State Farm commercials, really hadn't <laughs> done anything for 10 days. So Paul is had to play 40 minutes and he couldn't just be eased back like in a 25, 30 minute game. And that hurt them. But, uh, um, but at the beginning of the third quarter, the Clippers went on a 21 to three run. Uh, Booker ended up having four fouls. And uh, Paul George hits this. Three, like a half court shot at the end of the third quarter. That was the big thing. But it was, it was, it was the end of the game. It was Booker was five for 21, one for seven for three, and Paul, Chris Paul was five for 19 for the game. So just the Phoenix, just, I, I was shocked how poorly they played that game. And that was just a terrible game. And now they were set up, you know, for 2 1 instead of being up. I mean, that was their chance to go 3 0. Now remember, the Clippers had been down to uh, the Mavericks and, and Utah Jazz, both the same down 2 0, and both came back. So now this was their chance. This is again, they come back and they win that one game and then and cut the lead from two to one so going on to game four here this was just not the performance that the clippers needed to have well it wasn't the performance because the suns kept saying i don't want to win the game i don't want to win the game clippers please win the game and the clippers <laughs> just would not take it i mean the suns were up uh, the clippers started the game three for 19 from three i mean all they were doing was shooting three-point shots mm-hmm. and missing left and right um the clippers went in the first half six minutes without even scoring a point it was 50 36 phoenix and uh, and then Booker finally, but the Suns weren't scoring that much either. Finally, Booker takes his mask off. My mom was screaming like, "Take your mask off! You don't <laughs> want to play with play with the mask." And uh, and then it was like Aiton was playing great, rebound after rebound. And then they, the refs were weird. They called a technical foul on Booker. And uh, and and there was this chance where they played five minutes of the fourth, and the score was four two, four two in the fourth, and it was seventy one seventy for that entire time. And the Clippers had their chance, like. After they called the technical foul, George went to the line to make three. He had he had three shots because of the technical plus two shots. He missed it, and so it it stayed seventy one seventy forever. And the Clippers went zero for twelve. And these are like these weird stats, but it was like the longest in the last twenty five years, I think, within the counting the playoffs, that a team had a chance to take the lead when they were down one and didn't do it. They went zero <laughs> for twelve in their five minutes and couldn't score. And uh, and then Booker driving on Zubak with two minutes left fouled. He, he made it. They made it seventy nine seventy four. Um, Phoenix was just, uh, uh, but in the, but it was like horrendous that in the fourth quarter, both teams shot six for 34. Uh, Chris Paul, then it was weird. It would happen at the end of the game is that it just sort of became just a foul shooting because it, even with like the last 30 seconds, because they did not want Phoenix said, Monty Williams, the coach said, we don't want anyone shooting three. So we're just going to foul George. So they kept fouling George. <laughs> then George misses a foul shot. Then he has to miss the second one on purpose. And then cousin gets the ball was like back. It was like craziness that last minute where they kept fouling each other and shooting foul shots and the Clippers missed more foul shots. And that was even, I mean, it was just a mess in terms of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the foul shooting. And uh, with 6.3 seconds left, they fouled George. Now George had a chance and he missed a free throw on that one. And uh, then, then he missed the second one. Then they actually, got the offensive rebound and then cousins missed the chance to get to miss the shot <laughs> so um it was just one of those things where george shot five for 20 one for nine from three to 12 for 18 23 points 16 boards six assists but the clippers were five 
for 31 from three. Five. For, this was their chance to win, five for 31. And the Suns weren't better. They were four for 20 from three. Crazy. And uh, and Booker was 0 for five. Paul was 0 for three. Paul shot six for 22. Booker, eight for 22. I mean, both teams shot 30%. It was like one of those situations where the only thing the Suns did was just, they kept that lead at 71-70. And, just, and they ended, the final score was uh, was in the- 84-80. Uh, 84, I mean, 84-80 for two of the teams. And the one game. thing to remember about the Clippers with all these missed foul shots is- that they are one of the best foul shooters. They were the number one foul shooting team in the league. They had one of the best percentages of any team in the last 10 years, and they ended up just missing foul shots left and right. I run sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We'll have Matt Sullivan, a great author, joining us here in just about 10 minutes or so. Okay, let's move uh, over to the East. And Ira, a lot of pundits, myself included, really didn't give Atlanta a shot here against Milwaukee. And what did they do? They came out and surprised me and a lot of other people by winning game one. Well, I'm telling you, that's the bet. I mean, Atlanta now in three series against the Sixers and against the Knicks go on the road and win that first game. Trey Young likes playing on the road. And Trey Young likes playing on the road, and he likes playing with the pressure against him. And it was like Atlanta had never won an Eastern Conference Finals game since moving to Atlanta in 1968. Now, they won. They used to be in St. Louis. They were one of the teams that moved from St. Louis to Atlanta. Uh, But they, they were in the finals in 2015, swept by Cleveland. But they won the title in St. Louis in 58. And then 57 and 60 and 61, they were in when they were in St. Louis. But uh, Atlanta, beginning, when that game started, the difference in this was that it was it, it, Drew, Drew Holiday, sometimes for Milwaukee, is fantastic sometimes and just horrendous others. <laughs> and he was just horrendous at the beginning of the game. And But it was like 28 25 in the first period. And it was like one of those things where Trey Young had 20 points of the team's 39 points at one point in the game and scoring everything. And, uh, but the Bucs were leading at half. And Portis, in this game, you saw what was happening, though. I think the, the seeds were planted because Milwaukee against the Nets did not play under the bench. But they have Conahay uh, from Notre Dame who came in and shot well. They were playing uh, Portis. Portis played nothing in the series against the, the – he didn't play three games. He came in, the, in for a minute. And now you see how he does adds things that Lopez can't. The rebound, shoots the threes, runs the floors better. And uh, But it was 85-85, 88-85 Atlanta at the end of the third. And then suddenly the Bucks went on fire. They actually went on a 13-2 run. We're up by seven with three minutes to go. And like, okay, the game's in control. They had a bad game. But then suddenly Atlanta, the offensive rebounds. Herder misses, Collins dunked. Young misses three, Collins got the layup. Trey misses the three, and Hill misses three, Collins. And suddenly they're up with it. And then they just missed it. And then in Milwaukee, Middleton missed a shot. Middleton missed a three. And it was one of those things where they ended up winning the game. And it was just, it was like, I think the Milwaukee just blew that game one. Like, and now that they're up 2 0, you're thinking, wow, if they won that game one, this would have been 3 0 series. But it was like they just gave. But Atlanta has shown this against Philadelphia. They, they get behind. That's why they're never sort they're of resilient. out of the game. They're totally resilient. And they're really, that, and, and Capella had 12 points and 19 rebounds. Call for Atlanta. Collins, 23 points, 15 rebounds. And you're seeing Capella and for Atlanta. And this is what some of these centers do. You can see how Harden used him and that why maybe the Nets need someone, like they need a center like that. You don't need your center to shoot threes. If you're going to do a pick <laughs> and roll, true. just cut to the basket, get the dunk, and then dunk the ball. And that's why Capella was so great when he played at Houston with Harden. And now he's playing so great with Young because the same thing is that he, he just doesn't worry about it. He's going to just set the picks. He's great at setting picks. He sets the picks and then goes right to the basket. And either the pick works and Young shoots a three or uh, whatever. And then I think what, this, what the idea about that game was, and so much discussion afterwards, was that when Trey Young had 48 points and 11 assists, it's like how they were guarding. There were points in the game where 
Milwaukee, Dre, Drew Holiday would be on him. They'd set a pick, and then Trey Young would be wide open. You even saw that last night. Like, it's weird. How do you let the guy who scores 49 points, like, no one's around him for three or four <laughs> seconds? And do you fight over the picks? Do you do Patrick Beverly style, or do you sit back? And it's like, so the whole thing is, like, Trey Young suddenly became this undefensible player. I mean, out of overnight, I had on my fancy team. I mean, he had some bad games this year where he was, like, you know, scoring 15 points. And then we saw last night, the, I mean, two nights ago, the the, uh, the bad game. But the point was, it seemed like after that game one, is like Trey Young is, un, you know, the greatest player. And it's surprising they announced the Olympic team and Trey Young was not on the Olympic team. Which, yeah, that was surprising. And there was a lot of controversy around <laughs> that. We'll talk about that another time. So let's go to game two, Ira. And Hawks riding high into this one. And then Milwaukee really put them in their place and showed why they are the Milwaukee The Hawks. line was eight, which is the same line the last game. And I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, there's a team that they just, they played even. Yeah. Like, I always thought the eight would be a huge line. But Milwaukee, 125, 190, 91. And the game wasn't even close. I mean, when you see the reserves in the fourth quarter of, of the game, and then I'm mad at myself because I sort of said, I don't want to go to the hockey game because I don't want to miss this big game for the playoffs. And then this game was done, totally kinda. over. I mean, it was, <laughs> Trey Young was, the, the the difference they made of this was that Giannis started in pours. What they did was they started putting taller people on Trey Young. So whenever they do the picking, if Giannis is there and guarding him, and and then Trey Young has to step back, he's now shooting like thirty-eight foot shots, thirty-nine foot shots, because Giannis and Portis were much taller. So they were mixing it up and also not putting Middleton on. And they were and, and also sometimes it almost seemed like they were guarding Trey Young like you blitz a quarterback, where like Trey Young didn't know what was going to happen. Like we're going to put two, we're going to double you. The person that you think is coming isn't. Gonna to come like they really played it like almost like a, when you see a defensive lineman like some people rushing the quarterback and the others going back in this like who's going back to cover wide receiver just tricking him and that worked I mean uh, the Bucks were the start of the game they were 8 for 36 in threes in game one and then in the, in the first quarter they were 7 for 10 Giannis was now, the interesting thing was that Giannis, they have put on this two-minute report of the game, that he actually takes longer than 10 seconds. So the point was is that he then speeded up his free throws and was is actually shot better. You know, it was not he was actually, until yes, last night, was shooting better on the threes. But there was a 20 to nothing run uh, for the Bucks in the second quarter. They ended in the second quarter on a 43-17 to 17 run. They shot 10 for 19 from threes. Trey Young had 13 points, but only two assists. And I think the two assists... That shows what was happening. This, this idea was we're not going to let Trey Young beat us. We're going to do everything to stop Trey Young. And that was really the game was over by that point. Let's go to uh, game three here. And this one, it was more competitive, Ira. But again, we saw why the Bucs are, are the Bucs. The Bucs are a better team. You know, I, I think the Bucs, it's like one of those things where I'm thinking about the finals because I think the Bucs are the best team. And like, like, but they make, you saw against the Nets, they when they're given the chance to win the game, they sort of, they look for ways to lose a game. And I'm like, but if they got all their pieces playing together, and I'm going to give Nick Wright credit on something he said, and I am, I disagree with Nick Wright on everything he possibly says. He's terrible, yeah. Terrible. (laughs) But he did make a comment, and it was such a two comment, because he got blasted for this comment. I heard him today about it. He said that the Bucks are similar to like the Lakers with the early Kobe and the Shaq teams. I'm like, I know that's the stupidest comparison. But the point is that Giannis is like Shaq, the superstar. He's going to score 30 points and 20, 15 rebounds every game. But you don't want him to take the shots at the game, get at the end of the game. And Kobe was not at that point, that first year when they won their first title. Kobe wasn't the Kobe that we know now. Kobe was just coming in. He was sort of an 18, 20 point game so core. Mm-hmm. He was sort of like what Middleton is. So Middleton is going to finish the game. And then you have Shaq playing the other role. And then you have Drew Holiday was sort of like a Derek Fisher role, like sort of a mix. Like sometimes he plays well, plays defense and those things. So it's, it's a weird comparison, but it's one where you where you're like your superstar player isn't going to be the one taking the shots at the end of the game, which is what 
they sort of had. But one thing about this game that I thought was weird is that the Bucks were wearing blue. Like, that is not part of their color. They're no. green. Fear they do. Like, I have no, like, some of these colors, the Clippers in one game wore gray. It's like they, Clippers use every single color imaginable. I've never seen them have gray as their color. <laughs> like, you're trying to dress the TV. Like, why are they wearing blue? Like, I, it, I don't ever saw it's the Bucks wear blue the entire time. But um, Trey Young, who was five for twenty-three, then it, from threes, he shot. He was on fire that first quarter, draining and from thirty-five feet, a floater, another floater, and then this time Giannis is now, and they're counting the ten, and the fans like they did in Brooklyn were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, counting it fast and with, with a violation. But it was like at one point Hawks went up by fifteen points. But it, that's where I give credit, though, because the Bucks stormed back. Because they made, at halftime, it was 56-56. I mean, it's like one of those things where you turn back, like, oh, the Hawks are up by 15. Suddenly, it's 56-56. And uh, Giannis had 16. Trey Young had 17. And then I think one of the key plays was in the second, was beginning of the third quarter. Collins had, uh, John Collins was playing great. But he drove on Giannis. Now, Giannis had three fouls at the time. That could have been Giannis's, uh fourth foul. But instead, they called a charge, which became Collins' fifth foul. So then he had to sit the rest of the way, and that really took him out of the out of the game. But it was like Young was left open again, shooting threes left and right. And uh, it was 82-80. Finally, with 82-80 at the end of the third quarter, the Bucks finally took a lead. But then the key play of the game and was Trey Young. They were on offense. Trey Young has the ball, and he backs up, and he steps on a referee's foot. Now, you wonder why it doesn't happen more because people like the refs are out there. Mm-hmm. They're not like outside the ring and he steps on the referee's foot, twists his ankle, then has to go out of the game with like a minute to go. Then he had to get treatment and he came back clearly was hobbling. And one of my comments, we talked about this last week on the show. The, I think, and I am so for fan engagement. I hate nets in baseball. I hate all the, like I, you're I the most wanna, pro fan person out there. I am the most, <laughs> I, when I'm at football games, I don't like in the football games where they have this camera where you can't see like mm-hmm. in front where they block you at the football games. Like I don't want anything in front of me, but I think the fans in the front row of these games have got to sit down. And I noticed that in the Hawks game that the fans are all standing in the front row of the whole game. Well, when they're standing, if you see this play, the ref was sort of pushed out because he couldn't sort of run the sideline because the fans are standing there. I really think they got to tell these fans to sit it back because you notice when the Nick game when Trey Young was inbounding the ball the fans were all around him mm-hmm. and like there's a point where you, you can't have the fans on the, they're literally on the court now they're not getting involved and we saw like the uh, Tour de France when the guy with the pulled up the side and, and knocked a 90 car 90 bike uh, crash but the point is the fans in the front row it's not too much to say sit in your seats you're going to pay all this money for seats but don't stand up because when you stand up you're then closer to you're almost right on the court it, it is uh, it is a little bit of a mess and I, I, I assume the NBA will try to look into something to get this remedied. Um, but, but I think the key then at the end was Middleton. Yeah. I mean, finally, I've been talking. I mean, Max Kellerman blasts Middleton. He's not a star player. He's not this. But Chris Middleton came on, and it was just – at one point, uh, it was 95-88 Atlanta, and then Middleton had, like, scored eight straight points. He ended up having 20 points in the quarter, 32-38 for the game. But he had 20 points. He outscored Atlanta 20-17 to in the fourth quarter. Anytime Atlanta scored, Middleton would come back and score again. And these aren't just easy shots. I mean, he had some wide opens. He had one that Giannis said I threw to him, and I'm like, I don't think he's open at all. And he turned around and like a fadeaway corner shot. But finally, Middleton played that. And Young was worthless. He was, I mean, the end of the game with 35 points, but was, was certainly injured. And with Bogdanovich injured and Young injured, they really didn't have any way to match it. But Middleton was the one. If Middleton plays like this, this is how they're going to win the NBA Finals. And I listened to the interviews afterwards, and Giannis was so complimentary. He, he sounded great. Like he was it's like, a nice guy. oh my God, so nice. First of all, someone said, you know that Trey Young got hurt? He's like, oh, I didn't know he got hurt. And he goes, I hope he's going to be okay for the next game. Like it wasn't like, oh, he got hurt. Um, that's going to be great for us. I mean, he was like, oh, he's such a competitor. I hope he can play the next game. And like he's like, Chris is so great. I love Chris. I mean, he was complimenting teammates. Like he is so 
like you watch that interview and like oh, Giannis, you're amazing. Like you're such a, like, I'm becoming a Giannis fan and like start making your free throws. But I mean, he was just so nice and it was just that type of thing. But it was, it was like one of those wins where they're up two one and they came back and now uh, we'll see what happens in game four on Tuesday night. So Ira, there's a lot of years, especially in the NBA of all sports where you're not that excited about the draft, unfortunately. And we've had a couple of clunkers, you know, in the past decade or so. This draft is not going to be one of them. At least uh, that's how the scouts are looking at it. And the first overall pick is going to go to Detroit. Um, there's a freshman out of Oklahoma State named Cade Cunningham, who they're assuming is going to go number one overall. But then there's a lot of talent behind that uh, as well. I think there's so many picks. There's J- uh, uh, Kamarji and Green and Suggs. And there's players that you Evan saw. Mobley. And, and Evan Mobley. I mean, this is a type of draft where there's six people that six players that everybody likes but they could, it's very deep and I think some of the winners that you had now a lot of the way they did the draft lottery is that you were if you made a trade earlier you could protect your pick meaning that if I have a chance to get LeBron James I'm not going to trade you get my first round pick but if I have a chance to get him then you don't I'm protected from one through three and uh, that's what some like Houston was able to get the second pick they didn't have to give up if it didn't fall in the top two they would have had to give their pick to Oklahoma City so the point is Detroit Houston Cleveland Cleveland actually moved up I mean Cleveland is great at this draft thing they continually win all all the time and Toronto and then Toronto is interesting because look they're drafting fourth but they already have they just had a weird year they played in Orlando they had injuries everything was messed up but they they have Siakam they have Van Fleet they have a they have a core of a great Lowry might be back there so now with the fourth pick they're going to be fine and Golden State um, Minnesota made so that pick if Minnesota would have had a top pick in the top four they would have kept the pick but Minnesota really had a good year Anthony Edwards surprisingly I didn't think it was going to be Me great either. <laughs> played great everything so that pick though went to Golden State so now Golden State got actually two picks um, so they're going to have two picks which is great for Golden State because they have Clay Thompson coming back Curry's going to be on the team they have Straymond Green now with these two lottery picks there's things that maybe Golden State can potentially do and then there's Orlando as number eight but uh, as a result six teams Oklahoma City City with three picks in the first round. Houston and Golden State, Orlando, and New York have control over 12 of the top 30 picks in this year's draft. But uh, the draft is coming up at the end of July. I love going to it. I don't know if we would make it to this year. But Detroit, but everyone's saying that they had such a great draft last year. They Killian Hayes, Isaiah Sword, and Sadiq Bay. I'm not sure about that. But I mean, Detroit's been bad for so long yeah. that it's, it's like, finally, let's see if Detroit can do something. And, and a team like Houston needs a lot of, a lot of pieces. Before we get to uh, Matt Sullivan here on Iron Sports, I think you want to talk a little bit about the Nets series. Um, oh, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to make one thing, and I think about the Nets series is that I felt like the Nets that trading when we we we're gonna talk to with Matt about. It, I'll ask him about Spencer Didwitty. Not having a bench hurt them. Spencer Didwitty, if he was in that game, would have made a difference at point guard. He was a point guard. The Nets are a mess, and that he was a point guard before Kyrie came. He tore his ACL with before the year started, and people said, "Oh, he'll come back." Clearly, after reading Matt's book, he's not coming back to the team because he wasn't even watching the games with the team. But I think if Dinwiddie was there, and when they traded Jared Allen, it was to get the hardened trade. They traded Jared Allen, who's at Cleveland right now. Jared Allen is this star's young center that's that's fantastic. And I think that was I, the Nets' depth really hurt them. And we're going to ask talk about Matt a little about that. But that's the key is they're going to have to get these pieces in because they lost those two. Those were two key pieces. I think if they had them, they would have got by the buck. Let's go to Matt Sullivan here on Iron Sports. 
Zyron Sports on 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. And we're honored to have Matt Sullivan, author of Can't Knock the Hustle, a book that just came out that I think everyone is talking about. And it's a story about the New Jersey Nets, I mean, not New Jersey, the Brooklyn Nets uh, seasoned last year, dealing with the bubble, dealing with uh, the George Floyd social unrest, Kyrie, KD, everything. So you really covered a lot of ground there in this book. And Matt, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Appreciate you having me, Ira. So the title of the book is Can't Knock the Hustle. And we mentioned all those issues that you covered and covered embedding with the team for a year. But that comes from, now we're down here in West Palm Beach and in Florida, and there's been talk about Spencer Dinwiddie as a free agent might be a possibility for the Heat. So tell us about, you chose Can't Knock the Hustle. That's a quote from Spencer. What is so interesting? I mean, you have all these cast of characters from Kyrie to KD, the Nets, everything. But you chose your title to be from Spencer. And he comes across as very interesting in the book about his background and everything he's trying to do with the NBA. Can't Knock the Hustle is a, a Jay-Z song from Reasonable Doubt, 25th anniversary of his last week. Shout out to Jay-Z. But yes, I, I think everybody was complimenting uh, Spencer's entrepreneurship, his real off-the-court push as, you know, you can't knock his hustle because he's always pushing the boundaries of what it means to be an athlete and to be really a famous person. I think Spencer would be a great fit with the heat, not just on the court for Spo. But really for the city, for the state, and for kind of bringing his, his hustle, his vibe down to Miami. He's got, uh, he tried to IPO his own contract, which I, I won't waste your listeners' time trying to explain Bitcoin. But he also um, has his own app trying to expand the idea of influence and quote-unquote creators into this galaxy where you can really interact directly with, with athletes, with celebrities, instead of just at mentioning them and jumping in the comments. Spencer's one of those guys who is really, really up close with his fans and I think is one of the kind of athletes of the future who doesn't need to be a superstar as you would imagine it so much as what I call the superstars of tomorrow. And then it was interesting in the book because you talk about, you spend, the interviews you had with Kyrie and Katie are amazing um, because, of course, they're very hard to people to interview and to get to talk to. But on one hand, they're, they're talking about Katie is unhappy with Golden State. Kyrie is happy, unhappy with Boston. You talked about the meeting that they sort of came together and said, we got to find a team together that we want to go to. But the way you, the book sets it up is that Kyrie really always wanted to play for Brooklyn. That was the team he, Brooklyn, he actually grew up as New Jersey, but he wanted to play for the Nets. Yeah, he's a New Jersey kid, and I think he's always been searching for what he defines as home love. And Boston wasn't his decision. Cleveland wasn't his decision. He really hadn't chose where to be except for an injury-riddled year at Duke. And so he's having this injury-riddled uh, year in, in Boston as the young stars J- Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were kind of on the come-up without him. He has this very you know, in- interpersonal summer of, of searching for his own truth. And he goes back to his uh, Sioux roots. His mother grew up on the Standing Rock Reservation. He went there and kind of connected with his with his, those spirits there. He connected with Bill Russell in the bleachers of a gym where they talked the 60s. They talked race. They talked race in Boston, which, you know, friends of, of Kyrie tell me was not a small part of, of why he left. And then in January 2019, before the the Pruder tape, if you will, that we've all seen of KD and Kyrie talking about two max slots at the All-Star game. They're actually over at Kyrie's place when the Warriors are coming to play the Celtics. The wine is flowing, the vegan burgers, the vegan smoothies. They're playing as themselves on NBA 2K and kind of thinking about, okay, here's a franchise we can control on our terms with those two max slots, but also players, coaches, owners, that they can tell what to do. And I think that's really what we refer to as the modern player empowerment. 
think what, what was interesting is that Tyree had chosen that path to come home midway through the season with the Celtics, even though he told them that he was going to sign an extension long term. That changed when his grandfather died and he started looking at the idea of being a person in addition to an athlete a lot harder. And KD had basically already made up his mind to go to Brooklyn while he was still playing in the finals with the Warriors. <laughs> you said that KD, he liked um, the doctors at Brooklyn. Actually, he had when he tore his Achilles, the Brooklyn team doctor uh, operate on him. He liked the colors. He liked Jay-Z. He, and his dad, though, was pushing him to go to the Knicks, saying, you, what, you like New York so much, go to the Knicks. And he's like, I'm more of a Brooklyn person. I, I'm not a, a Knicks person. Yeah, he asked his dad right before the free agency window officially opened, you know, what do you think about Brooklyn? And his dad, who's a longtime Knicks fan, said, you know, the Knicks is Mecca. If you want to do it, do it big. If you want to be a New Yorker, be a Knick. And KD, as you said, he likes the black and white. He didn't want to be the savior of the Knicks. He didn't want to be on Broadway necessarily. He's kind of a pure hooper for all of his entrepreneurship and, and you know, Hollywood mogul stuff as well. His dad shot back over text. Are you doing this just for Kyrie because he's your buddy? And Katie said, no, he's really making this decision for himself. That, of course, didn't stop the Knicks from desperately and you could say rule-breaking in in reaching out to Katie's dad and having a video conference trying to desperately lure Katie to Broadway, even though he'd already made up his mind. And I mean, the Olympics are coming up and, and worse than I'm interested about the team is I'm looking to see, well, who could recruit who? Because it seems like every time there's an Olympics, it's not the story about how the team does. It's what happens with LeBron, Wade, Bosch all decide to form a team. And you put back to the 2016 Olympic in Brazil when uh, KD, Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan were all together and they got to get to know each other better. And they were on a cruise ship the whole time because they couldn't be in the city. And that was where the bonding formed, where they talked about forming maybe a super team in the future. Yeah, it's easy to forget, but 2016, there was another virus, super bacteria concern that Rio de Janeiro, before the Olympics, could be kind of contaminated with this raw sewage and, quote-unquote, athletes could be swimming in human crap. So it's it's a far cry from, obviously, the devastating virus we've faced, but the NBA, Team USA basketball hoopers were on this luxury cruise liner and you know, yet more wine flowing and DeAndre Jordan and and Kyrie and and KD really, you know, formulated at least the nugget of the beginning of their super team in the immediate aftermath of Kyrie hitting that game-winning shot with LeBron. So it just goes to show that player empowerment has to do with friends, colleagues forming the super teams that they want. Even if they're under contract, even if they're waiting for the, the term limits, if you will, of certain dynasties to give way to the next one, And I think the Nets, given everything that's going on the last year, year and a half, kind of haven't hit their stride yet in terms of that dynasty. But it's coming, and and they saw this coming a long time ago. So the Nets, while this is going, while the plans are formulating Katie and Kyrie, the Nets were a team that people thought were going to be terrible two years ago. And Kenny Atkinson, and then he had players like Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, uh, and D'Angelo Russell was actually on that team. But they overperformed. I mean, there's a team that's supposed to win like 18 games, they ended up winning 42. And they started this thing called the program, where they were analytical, and they had so many staffers, and they're, they're, everything was to the T. And they created this whole idea of, of the program, we're going to be better than everyone else, we're going to do everything, we're going to work harder, Sort of like we're down here in Miami and they, they talk about the culture with the Heat. It was sort of like the program with the Nets. But then when Katie and Kyrie come in, it's there's that conflict between, quote, the program and then the superstars. And really a, what one top executive at the Nets franchise referred to as a blank check for these guys to do whatever they want. So, yes, the performance staffers and the elite medical team were living in KD's mansion in the cliffs of Beverly Hills over the summer while he was rehabbing his Achilles. 
yes, all of the attendant luxuries of the modern NBA were basically a recruiting tool to get these superstars. And so if you look back at where the Nets came from, where they traded a quote-unquote big three uh, for Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Jason Terry back in the day, the former GM of the Nets, Billy King, told me that that was actually a recruiting tool for KD as well, for the Nets to build up something that KD could see from afar. And this was for his 2016 free agency decision. Obviously, that big three trade failed spectacularly. One of the most embarrassing trades of all time left the cupboard empty for the Nets for years. But new GM Sean Marks and Atkinson built that back up again. But then by the time that quote-unquote culture, you know, lured KD and Kyrie in 2019, they became the culture. They didn't believe that the culture had really started. And so, you know, Kenny Atkinson's program, you know, kind of withered a little, kind of got overtaken. He got forced out, even though everybody thought that he was a big reason that KD wanted to come play in that system. Again, this is just player empowerment exerting its will rather than franchises building up what we see as programs. I think that goes back to Miami, the decision, you know, Spo and and Pat have have obviously built an an immaculate franchise and, and sustained it over years. But that really kicked into gear with superstars dominating as they do this league day in, day out. Yeah, and then the issue is, I mean, last year, what was so crazy with the Nets is that KD can't play the entire year. It was expected he wasn't going to play. Kyrie was, again, with more injuries in and out of the lineup and disappearing. And then you have the team and, and, and trying to perform. And then you had Dinwiddie doing playing as well. So it was, it was a sort of they were there but not there type of thing. Where, like you mentioned in practice, how KD was always in the there was an area where the massage table was. There was like the superstar area for the practice. And then there was the rest of the practice. Yeah, it's kind of like the cool kids table in the lunchroom <laughs> in high school, right? And, and I'm not saying it's, it's that juvenile, but it, it can be that um, divided, if not divisive, if that makes sense. And, you know, Spencer kind of graduated to the cool kids table. But then when Tyree and Katie were really out of the picture and the pandemic set in and injury set in and surgery set in for, for Tyree, they were kind of orchestrating some things in the shadows in terms of um, Kenny Atkinson's departure. I think even he would admit it was a firing. And then, you know, what came next with other players? And as Kyrie made this kind of think about potentially opting out of the bubble and how other players should join him, I think some players who felt like they should play in the bubble, who felt like, you know, activism and change could be dealt with from inside using players' voices. Kyrie had some differences with teammates, and I'm not sure they quite made it back the next year if they disagreed with him off the court, which is to say nothing of the fact that KD was basically ready to go for the bubble. There were these kind of secret workouts that Kobe Bryant told Jim, may he rest in peace, that kind of became Nets West headquarters during the bubble. And again, that's kind of not really with the rules of the NBA. They weren't supposed to be there given the harsh um, and strict COVID protocols. But KD being the hooper that he was, he wanted to get in the bubble. He wanted to get back in the gym. It could have been an epic run for the ages. But this Nets elite performance staff said no. And you also mentioned how Katie even said, I want to, whereas Kyrie said, I want nothing to do with the bubble. I don't want to be there at all. Katie said, look, even if you don't want me to play, can I just go there and root the team on? And uh, they said, no, Katie, stay away. You're not, well, it was actually, he wasn't allowed if you weren't actually playing on the team to be in the bubble. I mean, could you imagine wrestling with these personalities day in, day out? I think it's a big reason that these big dogs wanted Steve Nash in there. His relationship with KD goes back to when Nash was kind of a, a fake assistant coach under Steve Kerr in Golden State. KD called Steve Nash kind of his Yoda, and so the not so young Skywalker, you know, reunited with him. And, and Steve, you know, I worked with him at Bleacher Report. 
he's fairly hands-off, even though he obviously is a tactical wizard, former MVP. His philosophy this season has been, quote, protect the group, which basically means insulate these guys from the media, which obviously KD and Kyrie have their issues with, uh, from just the difficulties of the outside world while letting them pursue those things off the court if they want to. Obviously, KD's got his kind of budding boardroom empire, and and Kyrie has all sorts of off-the-court pursuits and and scandal-lets, if you will. And yet Steve can kind of lean back and let these guys be be themselves, and you add James Harden to the mix, and it's been complicated with injuries. I think it'll be interesting to see how these personalities mesh, especially off the court and as kind of this group that KD likes to call Nets World. <laughs> I didn't think, I was like, I think it was helpful this year that KD had the domino. I was there at the Barclays and saw Durant have two of one of the two of the greatest games you could imagine uh, just dominating performance and people were questioning whether he could ever come back and he's uh, arguably better than ever and I think that helped him in sort of saying that he's the alpha dog on this team but because I was concerned that there's, the, Ky, there's part of that Kyrie and you mentioned the quotes in the book it's almost like he won the title LeBron if it wasn't for he if it wasn't for Kyrie shot LeBron would have never won that title in Cleveland like it's almost like his his sense of himself and whereas I don't know in a close game whether he'd be taking those last shots instead of letting Durant did and like with Golden State I thought Curry and Clay Thompson in the finals in the fourth quarter they let Durant make those shots they 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 stepped back in a role I didn't know if I'm pretty sure Harden would because you see how Harden played with this series but I'm not sure if Kyrie would be willing to take that step back and not take that contested shot and let just KD take a game over in the fourth quarter well, Harden was playing like a 75-year-old man out there in, in the Eastern Conference Finals. But yes, he's shown a willingness to you know, let down his ego and his shots and his dribbling 90% of every possession to, to help his real, really friends who he respects. I think Kyrie's an interesting case in that he's really a, a pupil of, of his own Yoda in, in Kobe. And Kobe, as I kind of get to inside the room and unvarnished, he was a killer, right? And, and, and I think he didn't care about those guys from the program or the seventh man so much as how he could use teammates to to take that last shot and and sometimes Kyrie has Kobe in his head when they're down to the last minute and he doesn't mind taking that isolation play and thinking about Kobe's advice the same advice he gave to him for that game seven shot you know tuck your right elbow toward the hoop Kyrie had that same advice going through his head when he dropped 54 after Kobe's passing at Barclays Center I think when Kyrie's not the guy. He, he chose to have control, but he also didn't choose to come alone. I think it's interesting that KD in some ways followed Kyrie to Brooklyn, right? And so if, if Kyrie can you know, disappear from the team for a couple of days at a time, do his own thing, treat it as a day job, you know, he also brought everybody here. And so he has a tremendous stake in this franchise's success. And I, I don't think he's going to be afraid to take the buzzer beater next season. His, his feet certainly aren't as big as KD's to step on the three-point line when it could be. <laughs> and it, just the challenge, I look at, you know, when people criticize Phil Jackson, like, oh, anybody could win. I mean, oh, I mean, to try to coach this, these personalities for Nash is just going to be the, the huge, and all the criticism that's coming his way. But also with Sean Marks and trying to find out, like, the Blake Griffin worked out perfectly for this team. But it's going to be the right young type of player that is able to step back. And it's just going to be such a difficult challenge to put this whole team together with the personalities and how it's going to work and and because they have this great opportunity to have this run because they're still fairly young three superstars so the point is do you think that they'll be able to like what will happen next year I mean if they, they have to of course avoid injuries but the fact is it's just the challenge of putting this whole thing together and, and, and make, trying to get this run going they'll be ring chasers I wouldn't be surprised if, if KD and, and Harden did some recruiting out in Tokyo, you know, Kevin Love type could easily come in on a, on a buyout 
um, to say nothing of who knows some crazy Dame Lillard scenario that would be the most unfair team like Warriors times two. But but I think as you said, it, it, it's about these big dogs finding out how to be dominant while being respected for being dominant inside a room where, where Kobe was giving some advice to Kyrie. Kyrie was talking about Brad Stevens and how he quote has a bunch of rules and I'm like okay but this is what we're running and we got to be great within this and Kobe kind of cut him off and taught him how to be a more mature alpha dog to say you know it was okay to overrule the box really that Phil Jackson they got in credit for a matchup switch that helped the Bulls get to the finals once back in the day but Michael Jordan didn't care and and Kobe told Kyrie, quote, at the end of the day, you do it, you figure it out, you win, and the coach gets paid. You're welcome. <laughs> so I think bringing that attitude is a championship mentality. It's how you win, whether people like it or not. And the Nets may be villains of the NBA for this dynasty to come. I don't think they care. Well, that's, and we've been talking to Matt Sullivan, K Knock the Hustle. We've focused on the basketball side, but you do spend so much talking about, of course, social unrest and George Floyd and, uh, the, and COVID and that they were actually in China. So there's a whole political side of the book, which is extremely interesting and, and to go cover also. So even if you're, you're not so into the, the, you know, how, what kind of set offense Brooklyn's going to run, I think you love this book because it just covers so many different things. And I think you've got a great response so far from, I mean, t- tremendous amount of good publicity for this book. Yeah, it, it really just does go beyond the game. And, and whether you're, you know, hate reading this as a, as a Heat fan or, or interested in going back across the decade, you know, this, this historic net season is cross-cut with scenes from those characters intersecting with the LeBrons, with moments from activism, social media, race, politics, really just influence and what it means to be powerful, famous, and changing the world in a way that sometimes our, our politicians or our leaders cannot, you know, we look to our role models off the court to show us the way forward. Yeah, and I think from back down here in Miami, we sort of saw a precursor of this, certainly with the Heat and how LeBron came in and there was all in that whole, with a whole mix of LeBron and, you know, they won two titles and then some people were saying, well, they should have won four, but, and then LeBron ended up leaving and then Riley was upset that he left and all those things. But the point is, I think it was like, that was sort of one of the first starts where when LeBron made the decision to come to Miami, it was like he was taking control. It's not like, I'm going to choose where I want to play and I'm going to bring other players and I'm going to join other players together. And now you're seeing, you know, other examples of that well i think lebron really set the template and to see how uh, other superstars have followed in his footsteps is fascinating i was talking to dr j who actually flexed pretty hard on on his team to to get where he wanted to go when when he was you know a a young superstar and he was telling me that you know there's there was a certain haughtiness a, a certain selfishness to lebron's decision 10 years ago and how He's evolved as a man, and also the game has evolved as not just being about these on-court empires. And, ha- and he told me that you know there's, there's a difference between service to yourself and service to the game, and how player empowerment has evolved over the last decade, where LeBron has not just empowered himself, but he's empowered himself to empower others. And I think that's where you've seen perhaps his greatest legacy. And, and you know, he told me um, when I when I met up with him at the All-Star game. But, you know, this was never just about basketball for him, and, and he's going to take all the, all the blowback, all the hate that comes, and, and just let it ride because he knows his influence reaches you know, millions of people, men, women, you know, black, white, what have you, um, who might, might not even care about basketball. And I think that's trickled down um, to guys who are forming dynasties or, or on terrible teams or, or who are the next great superstars who are still in high school. And I think that's the really lasting impact of, of this generation and this decade of, of hoops is, 
really off the court. Well, Matt, in your book, is Matt Sullivan, uh, the book is Can't Knock the Hustle. It's available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon and bookstores, everything. It's a great book. I suggest anyone order it and read it, even if you're not, like, you want to know everything about the Nets. But, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on Ira Sports. I really appreciate it. Great stuff there. That was Matt Sullivan here on Iron Sports. So, Ira, let's talk a little hockey because we've got the uh, Stanley Cup kicking off in just about a half hour. I don't think that really many people planned on Montreal being here. Vegas surely didn't. And even at the beginning of the playoffs, Vegas was, I mean, uh, Montreal was one of the farthest shots to win it all. And they came out shocked teams. They beat Vegas. They're moving on to Tampa Bay, who uh, who finished up the Islanders as well. Well, it was one of those things. They're 500 to one. Crazy. 500 to one. And I mean, the way the playoffs set up, but... And again, I feel bad for Montreal because their fans are amazing and they're not having any fans at their games. And I think that takes away. I mean, you want to see this. I think hockey with fans, it, it, you really need you to need have that. that. Yeah. And it's just that the excitement. And when they're, when they're playing, now you're seeing Tampa. They're playing a game in Tampa. It's going to be wild and crazy. Go to Montreal and it's quiet. It's, it's not like they were in a bubble. Everybody's in a bubble. So it looks so different. And it is amazing that Montreal even was able to pull this off without having fans in the stands anyway. Um, and in game six, they win 3-2 in overtime. Uh, they were and, and they scored. They were up 2-1. But in the third, Vegas scored. It's like one of those games where Vegas scores to tie 2-2. So then you're thinking, okay, Vegas just scored to tie to make it 2-2. Montreal could blow it. Then they, but they start the third, and the, the, the overtime starts. And what do we say about these overtimes in hockey? you you got to sit down fast. Yeah. It's either going to be the first two, minute and a half, or it's going to be like three the overtimes three later. later yeah. And it was like every one of these overtimes, it's the first. And do you think it's because they're drawing up the plays? And that's like, what? what is it with those first minute or two of the overtimes? Well, in the regular season, they go to four players or three players. So that's so the, the ice is wide open. That's why you see it. I don't know why that happens in the in the playoffs because they are playing full strength. So it, it it's bizarre that it happens. But yeah, it does seem to, it's either the right Penguin away series, or, yeah, or, yeah. or you're going to be sitting here for two hours. But, I mean, it seems like every overtime has been in the first minute or two. It, it is crazy. Um, Islanders, they put up a good fight against Tampa, but Tampa Bay, they are the best team. They're looking to be the first team to repeat since your uh, Pittsburgh Penguins did it about six, seven years ago. I, I, I keep counting teams out, Ira, and they keep surprising me, but that's it. I can't in good faith, say that Montreal's going to even win two games here. I, I think that Tampa's going to crush them. Well, I mean, Tampa wins 8 nothing over the Islanders on Game 5. In the Game 6, the Islanders win in overtime, so they win that game in overtime. But uh, uh, but in Game 7... Look, Islanders the, were flat. The Islanders were flat, but I was amazed that Tampa didn't score more. But do you, well, I, I, Tampa scored on a shorthand goal in the second period and then sort of just coasted the rest of the way uh, with great goalie play, of course, to stay. Yeah, ridiculous. But uh, but that was but I mean they were I guess they're being very careful, not taking any risk there. That I mean it seemed like the last ten minutes of the game they were being just very cautious and not letting anything come in. I mean, at what point the Islanders had like a like two three shots of like a whole period. Mm-hmm. Like. No, they, they they definitely buckled down and and just went st- into straight defensive mode. This Stanley Cup is going to be a, a battle of the goaltenders. Carey Price has played excellent for Montreal. They're going to need him to stand on his head to beat this team. And Vasilevsky's the best goalie in hockey. So good luck to Montreal, but it's going to be it's an uphill battle against this squad. Let's go to the MLB, Ira. And it's never a good thing when rule changes and, and umpires are the ones getting the headlines. And that's definitely what this last week has been with all this, uh, you know, new inspections on pitchers. I have strong opinions on this one. <laughs> yes, you do. I, I, this is, so they don't, they come out and say, wow, we think that pitchers 
We're going to investigate at the beginning of the year. We think that pitchers, because if you watch a baseball game now, it's either going to be a strikeout or a home run. And there's so many strikeouts and everything is happening. And they're like, and they're like, well, the pitchers are, might be using this spider tack or sticky tack or something they're using to, 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 create, to grip the ball better. And they investigate and they find out, boy, pitchers are using this. They're all using this. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's using this. And like the league's like, well, we don't want you to use it because it's really hurting the game because now you're having way too adventure advantage. Pitchers are like, oh, this is unfair. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I go, the Houston Astros, everyone's mad at these hitters because they were looking at a video. Look at this. They were look, watching something on a videotape, reading a signal, and then banging a drum, which is sort of like, I don't know. I mean, that's what, that's what football players do. I mean, we, we look at signals and see how they're signaling in and try to guess something. So as bad as it, quote, it's not fair and not right or whatever, but the Astros are, they're the worst in the world. The manager loses his job. The general manager loses his job. We didn't even know what was going on. And, every, and we boo Altuve and Correa and Bregman and Springer for the rest of their lives. So that's all they're going to get booed for. Because mm-hmm. they just, but the pitchers are allowed to put tack and everything on their hands, but that's okay. And then we talk about steroids. Barry Bonds can't show up at a game and everyone's this and that. And you have Andy Pettit. Oh, he can't be in the Hall of Fame because he used ster- like using steroids. So you, Andy Pettit injected himself with steroids so he could recover from a hamstring injury and maybe become stronger. But these guys, these pitchers are actually putting things on their hands so they can throw the ball. To me, that's more cheating than anything of these things are. And everyone's like, oh, that's okay. It's okay. Who cares? So I'm not. What I'm saying is, I again, I don't. That's why I'm not defending steroids or defending the other stuff. But I'm like, don't criticize. I like. I would put the steroid people in, and I'd put certainly. I'm not so mad about Houston Astros because I think this stuff is. Everyone's looking for an edge, and that's what they do. And if you get caught, then you get caught. But I just wouldn't put these. Like again, I think these to put steroid users as like the worst people in the world, and to put um and the banging of the drum of the Astros as the worst people in the world. But to say the pitchers who are all using the sticky stuff, they're okay. That's all laughing about it. I think it's ridiculous. It. it I mean, it's definitely shown to be uh, working <laughs> or like or I should say not working because everyone's spin rate is way, way down now that they've been clocking it for this past week since they're checking on it. So it's obviously affecting the game. And I get baseball wanting a more level playing field and not have 12 strikeouts a game for, for starting pitchers. It's getting a little bit ridiculous. Aaron Nola yesterday struck out 10 guys in a row, a major league baseball record. So I, I get what they're trying to do, but I get your point, too. You can't pick and choose what's cheating and what's not. It's either it's cheating or it isn't, and this was a form of cheating, technically. Right, and that's why I think these pitchers now look. Scherzer get now they're now they're using against them because they're asking to inspect them all the time whether they have what they have. They're they're maybe it's too much with the inspections. But the point is, is that I, again, but I think this has always been used. Remember the the Yankees pitcher that had it. They went and started inspecting. And he had stuff all over yeah. his body that go coming down. I mean, the point is that the pitcher's been trying to use that, and I think that's cheating, and that's why I think it's. I just don't understand why the steroid people are put in one class and then this is like oh it's laughing who cares what goes this goes on and those type of things but i think that and i think now i'm looking at these pictures and they're complaining left and right this is so unfair this is the worst thing in the world da 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 like you have such an advantage you're you're throwing a ball and they're like and gary colos i don't know how i can throw a baseball you know what it's not my fault (laughs) you can't throw a baseball like everyone else is doing it like these little (laughs) little leaguers are throwing baseballs like that then learn how to throw a baseball without (laughs) tack all over the ball how's the uh, playoff picture looking um I just think we're set. I really yeah. think that that the Red Sox and the and the Rays, they one of them is going to win the division. The other gets the wild card. And what about the Yankees? Again, Not every good. time they're six they and a half. They have a negative run differential. I, I, where Aaron Boone? How does he keep his job? I mean, do you realize that Aaron Boone, if George Summers was the manager, would have been fired like 
three years ago. Like, <laughs> I don't know how many, like a hundred times. Like he would have been probably rehired and hired and hired back. This is unbelievable. The Yankees are playing, are a 500 baseball team with the talent they have. Um, the Central has the White Sox and Indians, and the Astros and A's. The A's are playing great with 47 wins. So really, one of the wild cards is going to go to the Red Sox or Rays, and the others will go, there's two wild cards, are the Astros and, and, the, and the A's. One of the, one's going to win the division and one's going to win the wild card. I think that's set in the American League. It's crazy how it's uh, shaping up for the Yankees. And, yeah, I think Boone needs to uh, catch, the, uh, catch the brunt of this in the offseason. Let's go to golf, Ira. And this is an, another Sunday where I'm looking at it in the morning like, man, this could be a really good finish here. And it was a little bit disappointing. Maybe not for Harris English, but uh, the stars fell out. But we ended up getting an eight-hole playoff, which was really exciting. And I missed it. It was exciting, <laughs> but I wasn't watching it until I turned on the TV because I watched the golf. I was watching Bubba Watson because I told everyone I think Watson's going to win the tournament. He's won it three times. We talked about Watson at the Genesis, Watson at the Masters. He, sl- he loves the Travelers. He loves certain courses. You just keep betting these guys that love these different courses. And Watson was had the lead and had really the lead for almost three whole days. And then until in the 14th hole, he played 14, 15, 16, 17, like uh, four five over par, hit two balls in the water and was a complete mess. But Harris English who finished third at the US Open last week, so it's like Harris English has been playing well but he had a one-shot lead going he had birdied 18 and uh, Kramer Hickok, who had never won a tournament before, birdied, then he birdied 18 mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm not going to sit and watch the English Hickok playoff when I was watching the end of the NASCAR race and then I'm thinking I'll check back and then when I saw it wasn't on TV I thought it was over and then I'm like, I'll find out did English win? Or Hick- I didn't realize they were still like, I don't know where, what channel it was on, they kept playing <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, they played 18 twice, then they played 17, 18, 17, 18, and everyone made pars for seven holes. And finally, when uh, finally English birdied a hole and Hickok just parted. But uh, it was the second, uh, second longest tournament ever, uh, playoff ever. There was an 11-hole playoff in the 1949 uh, Motor City Open, and it went so late that they just called it off because of the darkness. <laughs> and But this tournament, though, I thought was weird. It's had two seven-hole playoffs. That's weird. Yeah, they should strange. come up like, I, but that's they should. I, they, how do you have two like insane with that? But uh, Dustin Johnson needed to a top five. This has a good field. Like usually the tournament after the is open is a bad field. Dustin Johnson was in it. He needed a top five to move back to number one and uh, to put to pass John Rom. But he finished twenty fifth. Kepka Bruce Kepka comes out. Brooks Kepka. Um, ended up shooting a 65 and finished in 10th place for 10 under par. And Bryson was in this field, too. He finished 19th, and Mickelson shot a, a one under. And uh, Fowler, Finau, and Matthew Wolf both missed the cut. What a, what a field for the Travelers. This is the best Travelers field I think I've ever seen. Yeah, usually, like you said, it's especially after a major, you're not going to get the turnout, but they like playing in Cromwell, Connecticut, apparently. Um, what's going on with the Rocket Mortgage? Well, it's just this week, and then the Rocket Mortgage is this week, and then right after that is the match. It seems like everyone is talking about this match between between Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson versus Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that is overshadowing the Olympic golf or anything. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be what it is. And I think it's like must, must watch TV in terms of, uh, of that thing. And then there's the John Deere and then the British Open, the Olympics. So we're starting to get to the end of golf season. But uh, but I think the thing that they're talking about right now is, is is Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady is great at tweeting out everything. And between Brady and Mickelson, they are just <laughs> taking this over. And then you have Bryson. I mean, if, unless you somehow got Brooks Kepka involved in this, that would be just amazing. I wish they had the foresight. <laughs> Gotta, but, they, but then you'd have to take Mickelson out. But you yeah. don't want to take Mickelson out and put Brooks in. But where could you put Brooks into this some mix? I don't know. We'll get one someday. they got to be working on this behind the scenes. And then a big win for Nellie Corda. She's the new number one in the world on the LPGA. First American in seven years to be number one. Uh, both Nellie and Jessica Corda then made the Olympics. And uh, we, we talked about Sebastian Corda. We saw him at the Delray. So now they have two, bro- two sisters 
uh, one is number one in the world, the other is one of the top 10 in the world. And Sebastian Corda, who's ranked 50th in uh, the world in tennis and who's one of the best young Americans that actually might be playing in the Olympics also. But uh, Nelly had a big win. Now she's you know won the PGA Championship, her first major, and now number one in the world. We got just about two minutes left, Ira, and Wimbledon's going on right now. We actually saw uh, Francis Tiafo won earlier today. Um, yeah, I mean, it would, TFO beat Tsitsipas, as I had predicted in this, how that this tournament was going to go. Djokovic is even money. Uh, he won today. I think Djokovic is, wins this. But I think the advantage, what you look at, is look at the, the Medvedev, Sarah, Zerublev. All these great young players haven't played in grass. They've never been played well in grass. They didn't play in grass last year. So that's why when Tsitsipas lost to TFO, I'm like, not surprised. There's no theme, no Nadal. So I look at like Alpeca, Riley Alpeca, these six foot ten Isner, uh, those type, those two players that are just going to serve and, and get aces all the time because no one's used. Tsitsipas looked totally uncomfortable on grass. So to me, it's like they're playing ping pong. They're not really playing on a <laughs> service they're used to be playing on. And with the women, um, today, Sloan Stevens beat Kavitica. Uh, look, Serena's going for a 24th win, and there's no 24th um, Grand Slam. No Osaka, no Hallam. Let's uh, go to auto racing. Um, well, this was a great weekend. <laughs> it's strange. Well, first of all, in the Australian Grand Prix, Verstappen from uh, Red Bull team, he ended up winning it. He's led the race, led the whole time, and Hamilton was second. And this is the first time the Mercedes not, hasn't won a race in four, in four races. First time they haven't gone four races without winning. And Verstappen has a lead of like 18 points over Hamilton. And this is like a chance. I mean, this is where like Hamilton has dominated for years and years and years. And this is now finally Red Bull. And one of the problems that Mercedes has is that next year they're starting a whole new uh, the car. There's actually a brand new car they're starting. So they invested all their money into next year's car and not really focusing. They thought, well, we won it last year so easily. We'll win it again. But then Pirelli tire changed their tires. So the tire setup that they had last year doesn't fix the tire setup for this year. And that's why they're having trouble and losing to Red Bull. But then... Um, and, and they're going to run the same track next week in Austria. It's the same track two weeks in a row. So uh, Mercedes and Hamilton are in trouble. But and NASCAR did a Saturday and Sunday race in Poconos. Um, and Kyle Larson was going for his fourth straight win. Nobody's done it since 2007. And it was exciting because the end of the race, he passed Kyle Busch, the guy who drives with the M&M cars. And then he passed his own driver, Hendrick driver, Alex Bowman. And he was one mile away from winning the race and his tire blew, <laughs> blew out. And he ended it was amazing, though. His tire blew out. He crashed in the wall, but he still finished ninth. He was able to control the car and still get the point. So that was good. And then on Sunday, um, he, Larson was like having trouble because he had to, he had this he had a backup car that was also broke up and they were using hammers on in the middle of the race. He ended up finishing second in the race because at the end they were all like running out of gas. Like they, the, the, the gas numbers, people didn't know how close it was and they, Cars were literally, it's like when you're on a car, you're driving, you see how much we are, like zero miles. And like, you're like, oh, I can make the gas station. So like four of the cars, <laughs> Kozlowski, Byron, and Hamilton, all were like one lap away. And they're like, they had to go get gas. And Kyle Busch, who was, ended up finishes first. And then Larson was right behind him and finished second. And then Larson, not once Bush won the race, he tried to go around. He went around one more time and then he ran out of gas. So he just, he had one, he literally had one lap of gas. And finally in UFC, we are two weeks away from seeing uh, Conor McGregor take on Poirier. Well, Conor McGregor still is the huge star of, He's of the UFC. Draw. He's <laughs> the complete draw. And, and it's so funny because he hasn't won since, in a, he hasn't won a big match since 2016. That's five years yeah. ago. In the, in the meantime, he hasn't been fighting. He lost to Khabib in 2018. In 2020, he beat Don Cerrone, who really was not much of a fight. And then he lost to Poirier in January. And, uh, but he had, they call this the trilogy because he won in 2014. But this is, this is one of those things where Poirier, 
Now, this is, shows you how big this match is. That Poirier had a chance to fight for the lightweight championship. Your goal was to be the champion. He passed that chance. He let Oliveira beat Chandler because he was the number one contender. Mm-hmm. He gave it up to fight McGregor again, knowing he's going to make tens of millions of more, oh, yeah. win this fight if he beats McGregor, and then fight for the championship. Because he had it. He could have fought for the championship, mm-hmm. but that's why he won at McGregor. McGregor is, I mean, we're at a point now that if McGregor even loses this, he's still the draw. Like, I don't know what it will take to get Conor McGregor not to be the number one draw of the UFC. It seems like how many more losses can he take for be still like... Before people don't care. <laughs> I don't remember. Like, I don't remember a team or an athlete. Like, this is becoming amazing that he, he really doesn't have these wins yet. And, uh, and, and he's had some bad losses. They weren't even close like Poirier beat him in, in the second round and mm-hmm. and Khabib just destroyed him so it's really hasn't had like it's just amazing he's just a very intriguing uh, that just shows you the power of personality no absolutely um so we got to wrap this up all right you you're gonna head to Atlanta tomorrow you think you'll get over to Tampa for one of these uh hockey we'll games see Wednesday we're gonna see what happens on Wednesday and then the NBA finals start the following week we are out of time thanks so much to Matt Sullivan he's Ira I'm Mike it's Ira on sports we'll talk next Monday night